The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Reference to any third party, specific product, process, or service by trade name, trademark, or otherwise does not constitute or imply endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by salient. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Epsilon Theory Podcast. I'm Michael Correo, Director of Investor Relations and Communications at Salient. And uh, I'm here, as always, with uh, Dr. Ben Hunt, Salient's Chief Investment Strategist. And joining us now for a second time, Mr. Downtown Josh Brown. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well. Uh, So when you walked in the room today, you said, I have a complaint to make. And uh, we'd love to (laughs) kick that off with with, uh, what, what your complaint is. Uh, no, I don't have a complaint. I was saying everyone has a complaint right now. Um, but I, I think I – think, uh, all right, I think two things. The first is we're kind of in this really weird moment right now where the election has passed, the inauguration has passed, and now we're seeing the new president do what every new president does, which is sign a whole bunch of stuff. The difference is I think uh, twofold. The first is that it's very, very visible – Every little move that gets made, social media is amplifying it in ways that previous generations haven't had to deal with. So that's making everyone hypersensitive to every perceived slight of every interest group. Um, but then there's the second part, which is there are some very extreme things happening. Um, so I guess my big complaint is that maybe I'm paying too much attention to it all uh, and maybe everyone else is too. So I think I have some strategies for investors that we'll talk about today. Um, to get through this very weird period um, so that we can all stop complaining so much and maybe focus on what we're all here to do, which is um, make some money. futures and make some money. That's right. Josh, great to have you Thank back Thank you here. very much. And the last time we spoke, I, th- I think it was right after the first debate, mm-hmm. the first yes. uh, Trump, Trump-Clinton debate. That's right. And, and now here we are. Yes. Here we are. And so I, I, I like your point about the um, you know, social media uh, amplifying anything. Unless, of course, you're you're the Badlands National Park, right? Right, right. I love I love that. I mean, right. to to me, that's actually one of the more interesting initial actions of this administration, which is basically to put a gag order on right everyone everyone in government. So how? But so how much of that is just hey, it's a new administration, and we want our message to be the only message coming out of federal? Um, you know, how much of it is that? And then how much of it is, you know, the the conspiratorial, oh, my God, it's happening. They're really going to do this. They're really going to silence all dissent. I, I'm not decided yet. Well, I, I tell you, I think it's more the, the, the second than the first, the, the, the more okay. conspiratorial. And the, the only reason I say that is that there, there absolutely is an intentional effort to change the culture of these uh, executive uh, operations, like the National Park Service. Right. So and 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 I get it, right? I mean, I mean, do you do you want the national park having a a, a view, right, on climate warning? Personally, I do, right. right? But 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 I get it. They're trying to to change that whole 
uh, purpose for government. Well, I, I it's think, not I think in it's sync. So it's it's not in sync with the president's business priorities. The things that the totally right. The, the things that the EPA and the and the National Park Service employees may want to say will probably not be in sync with <laughs> you know building pipelines and and uh, uh, you know trampling on fuel emission standards and pulling out of Paris and and all. So to some extent, it's like, well, listen, this is this is who won the election. So it's a little bit their pr- priority. The other thing is, what was the outrage like when um, an acting general in, I think it was Afghanistan, uh, was openly criticizing Obama and openly saying, we in the field are not getting what we need and our message is not being heard by the administration? Because that is a thing that happened. Oh, and, it is. And, and we can't, you know... we. We can't be complete hypocrites and say um, that that it's okay for one president, but it's not okay for the other. So I think like we have to be somewhat open minded and just say, okay, if you're a federal employee, probably you shouldn't be criticizing the administration, um, whether it's via subtweet or interview with you know the New York Times. I, I, I'm with you 100, percent and and that general was sacked in the same way that MacArthur was sacked, right. and he criticized Truman, right? So. I think the difference here is the scope yeah. of the of the actions, and, and so that let's not allow you to distribute what what is in fact a fact about you know carbon particulates in the atmosphere. So right? a fact can become a subtweet, though. That, look, Very look quickly, what that, and that's what's, that's what's changed here. Right, right? Right, that, right. That's exactly what's what's, what's changed sure. here. Now, I want to go back to your your, your first point because this is the one that's really fascinating to me for our roles as investors. Which you said we're all paying attention to, whatever the next tweet is, whatever these policies are that are coming out of the White House. The focus is on, I'll say, the hope is on for tax reform, regulatory reform, regulatory rollback, really, and uh, infrastructure bill. And and I want to give you a, a a little example of that because that's what I am always focused on. Is, you know, what is the what's the narrative, right? What in the, in the narrative. We've been talking about this for a long time. The last, I'd say, four years, it's been, what's Janet going to do? Or before, you know, what's what's oh Bernanke going to do? We don't hear anything about that. It, it's it's all monetary policy all the time. Right? Yeah. And now there's not a peep. You know, we have a Fed meeting next week. Yeah. Who cares? Who cares? Right. Is there, so here's my my example. The ECB had a, a press conference last week. You know, they have a meeting at the press conference. That's it, in any in. In any of the last five years, that would have been the headline of the Wall Street Journal. Right. That would have been the headline. This year, I, and this is the stuff I, I, I measure and I look at, there was not a single headline article, electronic USA edition of the Wall Street Journal, that said anything about that ECB right. meeting press conference. That, now, that's incredible. Now, market, now, markets like this because oh, – yeah. Because the mark, I so when I say the market, so we're we're, um, you know, we're, we're going to anthropomorphize, yeah, 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 the, yeah, yeah. The, the buys and sells of, of a billion people. But fine, I'm just going to use that. Let's do that colloquialism. The market was sick and tired of the ECB BOJ. Fed, oh my god, it's kind of kind of circular uh, firing squad where you know one's talking about getting hawkish, so the other one has to talk yeah. about. It was it was so annoying, and I think the market was sick of it. And now the market has a new story, um, and this could go on for years. It's a tailwind for this market, and I tell you, it's not just the market to your anthropomorphization, which I entirely approve of. 
we're actually seeing an actual, uh, you are too, I'm sure, flows. Yeah, right. And in, in, in actual the existing market and potential investors that are first coming to market or adding more to the market. That's right. People right. people were sick of that that narrative that there's there's a room full of PhDs in Washington determining the level of the stock market. I totally understand it. Now you don't have to agree with what that's actually what was going on. Oh, I think it was. Okay, I know. I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There are others who would say, well, look at earnings. They also went up, but that's fine. No, but so I, I think the market likes having this new narrative and, you know, the market is willing and, – and there's a couple of other things happening. It's not just infrastructure. People I talk to are saying, well, it's loaded with Goldman guys and yeah. Goldman guys aren't going to let it blow up, right? Goldman guys have a way of making sure that the important stuff gets taken care of and Jared probably listens to them. And Bannon probably listen. So in other words, things will go far, but it's like more controlled than you think. So I'm hearing a lot of that. I don't know I, if I agree with it. No, I, and, and that I look. I mean, we had the committee to save the world, right? We had, we had the, the the Rubens and the yeah, yeah. you know the, the Summers and all like that, and they were they were going to keep it all safe as well. And, sure. and we saw how that that ends up. Right. But I can. But you're absolutely right. That is part of the story. Yes, it's absolutely part of the story. And so so my point is, we're still in a story driven market. Well, you always right? will. Like, this, when are you not though? Well, I mean, to to your point about fundamentals and earnings actually mattering, I mean, I, I think they did matter more you know, before well, before the Great Recession, but but even before March of '09 when the Fed launches QE1. Because think about how many uh, money managers and financial advisors you knew who said, "Well, I just focus on the fundamentals. I don't pay attention to the macro." Yeah, good luck. Yeah, good luck with that, right? Good luck with that well, since, just since one, one quick point. One quick point on earnings. There's a school of thought that I think uh, needs doesn't get enough attention, which is that the stock market bottomed in 2009 um, when they suspended mark-to-market accounting rules for the banks because that was the moment where you weren't looking at this permanent abyss of, of write-downs and losses and losses as far as the eye could see. And so that happened like – I think a week before the the actual stock market bottom, um, and so I understand that QE played a huge role. Nobody would deny that, but there is a, an earnings story that went along with the bottom of the market, and then of course earnings went up along with the recovery in fits and starts, and then we had an earnings recession, and that happened to have coincided with the Dow topping out temporarily in 2014. We didn't get a new high until we got past that earnings recession, which you could point to oil or the Fed got a little tighter or whatever. But like there is a correlation between earnings and stocks. It might not be apparent in every given month or quarter, but if you chart the two things side by side, you can't point that and say, this is 100% Fed. Like I, I, just my, my personal take. Yeah, look, I, I think that that change, the, the strength of, I'll call it the, the, the belief that the Fed controlled outcomes. It's grown over time. I remember when I started. I would agree. You know, I would agree with that. I started talking about this back in you know 2013, and people looked at me like I had two heads, right? By 2014, though, it was hard pressed to find anyone who didn't say, "Oh yeah, it's the Fed that's making the market go." But, so okay, so so doesn't this start? And that perception creates reality. But doesn't this start way before 2013? Like that, the Greenspan the, put. Oh, oh, like this is a thing that's, oh that's been with it, us forever. It, it it does go. It does go back. A long time. The but what what changed was the um, two things. One was the the actual use of the Fed balance sheet to right. actually buy stuff. Right. 
right? I mean, that that, okay. that was an extraordinary policy and that, that both had a direct impact, but more so it had the impact of strengthening that view that the Fed's got your back and they're going to bail you out no matter what happens, right? Right For crushing volatility and the like. But, but all I'm saying is that we're still in a policy-driven market. We're still in a narrative-driven market. It's just the focus has changed from all monetary policy all the time sure. now to all fiscal policy well, hope all the time. Keep in mind, you also had the taper. You had the, the end of QE out, right? You had the first rate hike. You had the second rate hike. Um, you've got constant uh, warnings about, we'll do what we have to do. You know, we, we will raise rates. We still think... So you've got the jawbone going. We're we're getting tighter, and and There's no doubt, and 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 that's not sending the, the message to the market. We've always got your back. Oh, you're right. Because the truth is, the Fed doesn't have your back. The Fed's got their own back, right? It coincided with having the markets back with the the, the loosening cycle, right? The easing cycle. But now they are going to tighten, and it's it's going to hang a recession around this economy. And it's going to hang a market decline around these investors, right? Right. Let me put it this way. If the Fed hikes three times in 2017, I think they're hanging a recession around. Does anyone think they're going to do that? Besides them? Besides them? <laughs> well, they, they, they haven't followed through in the past, right. right? But now they've got an excuse where they can. What's the excuse? Uh, uh, if this guy gets GDP growth three and a half, four percent? That they're saying, oh, we can point to inflation. It's starting to pick up. You know, right. we, can, we can point to, oh, you know, we're at full employment. So they can they can declare victory, hike, say we're just doing our job, and I think they'd be perfectly happy to hang a recession around. Would it be the worst? Would it be the worst thing on earth to have a, a cyclical recession in the midst of, it, 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 you know, after no. I don't know, seven years or, or I mean, no, I think it'd be the best thing. The problem the problem I see though is can you have a cyclical I'll, I'll call it inventory led recession without running significant risk with what's going on in China and Europe of having a, I'll call it a structural systemic crisis. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we can. Right. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. What, when, I, when I look at stocks and when I look at risk assets um, and look beyond the U.S., there are things happening with almost every foreign market that what they're telling you is that they're okay with higher rates in the U.S., you don't see higher rates elsewhere, and that maybe is the counterbalance. And you could say like, you could say like, well, is it a concerted policy? Is it just coincidental? But you know, you've got breakouts happening in IFA. You've got breakouts happening in MSCI All Country World XUS. Just about every major market is taking out a one-year high, um, and yet they're still between five and ten percent below the old highs from 2014, 2015. Um, but that's happening in so countries where Trump is not the president and where inflation is still uh, a non-entity. Listen, you're, you're totally right. Here's, here's what I'll say to that. It's a question. I don't want you to say, so the question is, look, if the U.S. keeps on hiking, right, the dollar is going up. The dollar is going up. And that's, that's an unmitigated bad thing for China. The dollar going up. That, and by the way, this correlation is broken down. This used to be my favorite correlation. It was true right. since the summer of 2014. That dollar goes up, that's bad for risk assets. Dollar goes down, that's good for risk assets. Now, the dollar... Not quite so simple now. It's not quite so simple now. Right, it's not sure. simple at all. So, so that, this is why I'm at a question now. Dollar goes up if we're raising rates and the rest of the world isn't. The dollar will go up. Okay. 
it's, is that still the problem that it was? Maybe it's not the direct impact or the correlation's not there, so you don't have all the trend following and all the correlation followers saying, "Oh, let's do the knee jerk reaction of selling." I, you know, sets. so I'm not a, I'm not a trend follower, and and I'm not trading macro, um, but I understand what you're saying. I think the bigger picture, though, is that these correlations never last. They're, 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 if there were a permanent correlation, then everyone would be aware of it, and it would be orbed out of existence. And that's you know, so you could say like. All right, this was this really simple, reliable thing. Whether it's oil in the dollar, ten-year treasury in the in the banks. Josh, I'm with you entirely. Yeah, on that. Right. I, I but, think but what's the real-world impact of a higher dollar? So the real-world impact of a higher dollar is that S and P 500 earnings won't be as great as they're projected to be, and B, it puts a lot of pressure on China to do something. But that's the thing. There's like five caveats I could attach to that. I could say, okay, the higher dollar not great for S and P earnings. Right. However. If there is a higher dollar, because U.S. GDP growth is is finally breaking above, you know, escape velocity or whatever the term is that we were always looking yeah, yeah, for yeah, yeah. all this time. If you're getting that, that's what's causing the higher dollar. Um, that can have a big read through in terms of business spending and other things Very that are true. additive to S and P earnings. Very true. That's one. Two. What is demand for U.S. It'd be goods even better around? for Russell 2000, which is why I think the Russell 2000s exploded right sure. since the election. Sure. And and what if the dollar is up because demand for U.S. goods around the world is up and there's just more activity happening? Trade has been global trade has been dead for years anyway. Yeah. Um, so what if you get you get a reacceleration? And then the other thing is, what does a resurgent Europe mean for S and P earnings? And when I say resurgent Europe, a resurgent European consumer, right? Because of, of a currency impact or a political impact, whatever you want to. So there are so many variables that go beyond just what does it do to S&P cash earnings if there's a currency headwind. There are so many other things that can feed into that equation. I'm not suggesting I have the answer to how to solve that. I'm just saying there are more inputs than just this one versus that one. And we know that's a net negative. You're right. We it's, don't not, know. it's not so simple anymore. But, but what Particularly a point about the S&P 500 earnings. The, the, the resurgent European consumer, I'll, I'll scratch my head on that one. Uh, I, I think that's hard to happen, right? Well, what does it mean for global? What does it mean for global markets? Is all I'm saying. It's in other words, in other words, you've got you've got these economies um, that Europe's the largest economy in the world. It's been moribund for I don't know a decade. Yeah. So what happens when it's not? Is anyone expecting otherwise than than what we've had all this time? Right. I, th- I think it's hard to get less moribund when you've got, you know, Marine Le Pen. Well, we said that here. They said that in England. You're, you're, well, this is true. So I don't know. This is true. I, here's where I think it's different. Here's where I think it's different. The European banks aren't as strong as our banks, right? They're, they, they are undercapitalized. The issue of breaking up the euro system and what that does for Again, to get to back to your point, can we have a is a is a garden variety inventory led recession the worst thing could happen? No, I think it'd be a good thing. But you can't exit the euro, right? Which which the UK didn't do. Obviously, they're not they're not part of the euro system. France is, right? If and if Le Pen is running today on a platform of elect me and I'm out of the euro, I I, I don't see how that is a it does not cause a systemic break in the European banks. So what if it's the what if it's the single most bullish possible outcome on earth is that a large euro country leaves and the world doesn't come to an end as a result of it? Um well 
What if that? Wait, wait. Let, let me, let me, let me caveat yeah, so, that. Yeah, how does, what if initially? What if initially it's as overnight scary as Brexit was, and then all of a sudden that country's leadership is negotiating unilaterally with trading partners around the world, better deals for their corporations, better deals for trade. Um, the banking, the, the banking system holds, which is a big if, um, both in what's left behind and what leaves. So we're not saying Spain, right? We're saying like France. Netherlands, France, right? Italy. Okay, right. So, so the banking system holds. There's an initial tremor in the currency market, stocks, etc. It writes itself. People go go on with business as usual. Everything gets renegotiated, but the wheels don't fall off. What if that serves as a positive catalyst? Why is that completely inconceivable? We already know that what's in place now doesn't work. Number one. Number two. We also know that it's not actually an economic system. So you've got essentially a scenario where Germany wins either way. The other countries may or may not win. That That's not a working system. So well, look, You're totally right. And if I were a voter in, in Italy or in France, I'd be looking to leave the euro system. These aren't trading Italy partners. Italy. These are debtor, debtors versus creditors right, at this right. point. Per capita GDP in Italy, it looks like you lost a, a world war. I think we've talked about that before. Right. I mean, it's crazy how, how growth is. So why couldn't that be a positive catalyst to just say, all right, we tried this. It, it hasn't been working. We're going to try something else. And maybe that ignites animal spirits amongst the individual business communities in each of these countries. So I hear what you're saying, right? But the, the, the problem is you've got the same problem as you had with the U.S. banks when their collateral for all of these structured instruments declined simultaneously across the whole country. Sure, right? sure. So you, you can't have, I, I don't think you can have, a triage or a breakdown of the euro itself without having these countries and their banks have enormous collateral problems. Right, but Germany already is not going to and act got, as... You would have to nationalize those banks. So, so we already know that Germany's not going to backstop these other banks, which is what, if, they, if it was true integration, that's what would have happened. That's right. Okay. That's right. So, but we that already, is reverse. That's so not we already happening. know it's not going to happen. So if we know that's not going to happen, and we know that there is an increasingly higher probability of... Um, You'd rather rip off the Band-Aid and... and well, to, well, look, if and, we, if we know I it's not too. working now, then I'm not sure why breaking it apart is necessarily a negative catalyst, even if it's sloppy in the process of breaking it up. It's not that... Look, my, my whole... So it's my whole way of... I look at, yeah. at, at... I'm not an economist, but as an investor, the way I look at this is, say, the United States... And I talked about this a lot around the time that the Treasury was downgraded for the first mm -hmm. time. So the next day, did everyone wake up, put their kids on the bus, make lunch, pack up, go to work, buy coffee, go to the bank, do their transaction, check on their 401k, you know, um, uh, go, to, go to the supermarket? It's like 80% of the economy is going to happen no matter who's in charge. No matter, right? Like, that's just a fact of life. In the so U.S., that's true. Correct. So we're always worried about Not this so other... Not so true in Germany. We're always worried about the other variable portion of that, which is discretionary spending and business spending, et cetera. Yeah. But I'm not sure any of that is being helped uh, in that other portion by the status quo. It, so, it, 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 Let me be clear. If I were a Greek citizen, I'd want to be out of the euro so badly it'd make your head swim, right? right. So. Yeah, you've got that short-term pain, but you know what? You're going to be okay. You go back to the drug, you really are going to be okay. Okay. I feel the same way about if I were in Italy and the lira, right? I feel the same way if I were in France. If I'm in Germany, to your point, well, of course, they you hate this, right? Right. 
right? And and, and what 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 I'm suggesting is that the intersection of the German economy and the European banking system that's a that's a systemic hit if the the euro system has to be recalibrated. Sure. And, and, and that, that's sure. That, that's all I'm saying, right? It, so here's a here's a um, and, and it and it will impact us over here. Here's here's why. So so here's my cautionary tale, right? So in 1930, U.S. passed the Smoot-Hawley tariff bill. Sure. Bipartisan support. Not a big gets hit. It through. It wasn't a big hit, <laughs> right? The U.S. economy did fine because right. just as you said, then as now, this is this is an economy driven by our domestic sure. spending and consumers and like. It's true in 1930, and it's true it's true today. It's probably more true today. Sure. Actually, almost true, but same thing, right? Every other country followed suit. That's what we'd expect and what we're seeing even right now, right? It wasn't until the summer of 1931 where Smoot Hawley hurt. How did it hurt? Because a European bank, Credit Anstalt, went belly up. Right. Right? Because then, as now, these European banks are levered to global trade. And when that happens, when that, that systemically important bank goes under, then I mean, you remember as well as I do that the, the question then is, what's the counterparty risk? If this bank went under, right? Who, okay. who, how do we know what 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 problems other banks might have? So let's protect ourselves by putting our money on our mattress, right? And that's when you get the liquidity crunch, and that's what kills things. Sure. So two things that can emanate for any other source. It doesn't have to be um, a, a European bank falling apart. You can have that happen from anything. I don't think you can prevent it. I think it's like a it's like a permanent thing that hangs over our heads. It's why we get paid for the investment well, risk we you're, take. You're exactly right. It's the problem with too big to fail. It's because we haven't done anything to I'll say to uncouple the banks from being too systemically well, important. You could say that the banks got bigger but they got safer in the US in the US. Balance well, balance sheets balance sheets got better uh, a lot of risk was taken off the t- now we could in, argue in the US that's exactly yeah. right. right right they got bigger but I do think they got safer now if you roll back Dodd Frank do they go well, back to being sure. unsafe right sure. so, so I mean you're not talking about rolling back Dodd Frank and putting glass there may not be time to roll back Dodd Frank because we have an election to investigate <laughs> <laughs> so we have to focus on the priorities yeah you're so right so but but I want to get back uh, because what we're seeing here and, and I'm, I'm going to agree with you on, on this particularly, what I characterize this market as, this is my Alabama roots kind of coming through, I call it a, a two-by-four market, meaning it's like a, a mule, you're going to have to hit it between the eyes with a two-by-four, right? To, to, knock it, to, to knock it down? To knock it down. And, yeah. and, and the two-by-four isn't going to be like, oh, let's get scared about an election in Italy, right? That didn't phase it at all. Oh, let's get scared about an election in the U.S. That didn't phase anything at all. Let, and so I don't think that an election in the Netherlands or France, to your point, is going to phase this market. What's going to phase this market, the only two by four, is from like a bank raising his hand and saying, oh, we've got a real problem here. Or for a trading company, you know, saying, oh, gosh, guys, you know, this devaluation, we're, we're, we're toast. Right. Right. That, that's the sort of two by four. And in, in the absence of that. So, I can't. I can't get. I can't get negative on. So this there's market. the consensus, and then there's the consensus. We learned this from Poland last year. <laughs> I think the consensus is that the eurozone breaks up. I'm telling you. I think the consensus is that um, it, the Italians do something off the wall. Uh, France gets Le Pen. 
I, I'm telling you that I, now no one will say that when you do, you do these like institutional global fund manager surveys. Oh, no, no, nobody can say way. that. Right, right, right. But, but I, I think that that's what people genuinely believe is going to happen. And so when it that does, is what people agree. don't fall out but of your Josh, chair. you're saying people also thought that in the summer of 2012, right? Because that's why you had Portuguese five-year bonds trading at 15%, sure. you know, and killed Corzine. Well, no, it doesn't mean they'll be right. right. I'm just saying. Well, well, no, no, no. But but I'm I, listen. Hear, hear me out on this. So so the consensus was okay. The euro is toast. What saved the euro was Mario Draghi whatever coming takes, out and right. saying we'll do whatever it takes. Sure. Merkel comes out. You're right. Whatever it takes. That became the mantra. Whatever it takes. Right. And that combined with the various plunge protection teams of you know, let's call up your buddy at Allianz and have them you know put a lot of money into markets. That turned the tide. Right. I don't think that that um, reserve artillery exists today. Okay, but we agree. And so what I'm saying is that whatever it takes might not matter if the expect if there's a creeping expectation in in the hearts of minds of market participants right. that this is all going to go the way Brexit went, then it doesn't matter if there's a whatever it takes in place on the book. I, I, I hear you. I hear you. But, but listen, listen, the market... If we do anything well, you know, to anthropomorphize, we train ourselves really well. Right. right? So uh, Brexit, the market was down for a day and a half, bounced back. Uh, U.S., the market was down for an hour and a half overnight. Yeah. Right, right, which was nothing. Hope you happened. weren't sleeping. Yeah, right, yeah, right, exactly. Italy, the market was never down. It, it was up prior to the election and kept on going up right after the election. Right. So, right, the market has absolutely trained itself to say that these supposedly status quo-breaking events – are now the norm. They're are now, now the, the norm well. and you know, probably a positive if you take a longer-term view. Right? I, I get that. What I'm saying, though, is that breaking up the euro is like a nationwide decline in home prices. You can say all you want, oh, yeah, it's not a problem. No one's saying I, it's oh, not a problem. It, it, is, I, it, is, it is a the, problem the of massive proportion. The question is, do we want to live with this for the next 20 years or not? Like, I think that that's what investors are asking themselves. As, as they should, because if you're wrong on the timing of a long volatility bet like I'm talking about, right. then you're just wrong. Sure. And, and God knows everyone predicting the device of the, the, the euro system, whether it was summer of 11, summer of 12. I mean, I had my teeth kicked in, you know, in the summer of 2012 around the, the everything. This is what prompted me to start writing about epsilon theory and the role of, of words but then, and But then what about the question of... <laughs> And I know, and I know we're 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 going off into like uh, semantics, but that's the game that's being played right yeah, now. Yeah. Hard Brexit versus soft Brexit. So hard breakup of the euro versus soft breakup, meaning one country leave at a time versus Merkel, you know, lose the election in Germany and the whole thing go topsy turvy in one day. Surely you'd have to say that there'd be a difference in terms of market and and economic response to those two different types of a breakup of the euro. Yeah, I, there would, there would, but but here's here's my way. Is, is that Brexit never really mattered, right? In, in terms of of the importance of the pound to the global financial system, sure. right? It just sure. doesn't matter. The only things that matter. I'm not even sure the yen matters anymore. Honest to God, I, I think it's like a proxy. I think, it, mat- I think it matters if you're if you're in China and and that's your version of the you know the, the uh, yeah yeah the, yeah. The Look, it, it matters if you're there, right? <laughs> it sure matters there. But what matters is the yuan the dollar, and the euro. Right? That's what our whole edifice has been built on. And, 
And, and what we saw in the U.S. in 08 was this edifice, this $10 trillion asset class of mortgage-backed securities. It's like what I like to call an inverted pyramid. Because there's this one assumption if that you cannot have a nationwide decline in home prices. If you violate that, the whole the whole structure comes tumbling down. And sure enough. And sure enough. Yeah. Right? And, and so what I'm saying is that we've got another structure in place. You've got $10 trillion worth of you know, call it negative yielding bonds, right? And and if a shrink a shrinking number of those negative bonds, though, I say you're, you're right as we, as, as we go away because that that was the jump the shark moment sure. I think for the central banks. Right? I think so too. That we could do negative. I totally agree with you. Some, that was a jump the shark. That's moment. when you knew. That's when you knew there needs to be a new game because this game is that's right. This right. is insane. This is clearly insane. It's not helping anyone, and now it's actually hurting. And and I'm not saying to get all bearish and to put this long vol bet on because I, I, the, the, the catalyst is not there. Like I say, this is a two by four market. But in the same way that you, you started this conversation where you said, I'm, all my attention is on the potential and the possibility of these real economic changes here in the U.S. And that's what I feel it. Look, I, I feel it. And I, I, I mean, but it's hard for me to get all bulled up when I know that you've got this thing hanging over there, I'm, I still feel kind of stuck myself. And, and so that's what, what, what I'm wrestling with. And so what I'm working on is, all right, can I get bulled up with what's in front of us today, but can I look at the right thing so that if my risk antennas start quivering about sure. a euro so or a so, shot, can I, get it, can I get in front of that and react to it quickly enough? So I'll tell you, it's times like these that I'm really happy that we do tactical in a rules-based way because yep. I feel the same yep. way that you do. And and we could substitute the the euro stuff that you're talking about. Two years ago, we could have said China is for sure. The economy is blowing up. Yeah. there's always gonna be something. But times like right now. So in other words, this market could run to tw- the Dow could be twenty two thousand and be uh, a ten percent move. That happens all the time. It happens Absolutely every right. year. Absolutely right. So it completely would not be. And, and let me tell you, outrageous. If we get a tax reform bill, yeah. Look, stocks ain't going down. Right. So so I'm, well, I'm I guess what I'm saying is. At a certain point, will some horrendous thing happen? Probably, right? I mean, this is this is the business that we're in. If there weren't these massive systemic risks floating somewhere out there in the galaxy that will one day rear their ugly heads, then stocks would trade 50 times earnings yep. and there'd be no room for anyone to ever make money. So, of course, all of this is a given. We both know that. I guess what I'm trying to say is we invest other people's money. It's It's not separated by four intermediaries. We're high net worth uh, investment advisors. We're talking to the head of the household whose money it is. We're not managing it through this whole complex web where we'll never look at that person face to face. So we have to do something where we've got a system in place so that if the quote unquote Trump trade all of a sudden goes from being a positive to a negative, we've got a mechanism in place that tells us, okay, we're shedding risk assets. What's that mechanism going to be? And it could be me reading the Financial Times Absolutely right. and divining from the from Fed speeches or Mario Draghi. Forget this, about this it. This hero model I can't of investment it. advice. No, no. It's, it's, it's so we have rules. We will be shedding uh, risk as markets break down. Sometimes those will be false positives. Sometimes there will be small whipsaws. We look at that as like an insurance cost. But sometimes it will absolutely prove to be the thing that saves the client from completely losing their mind and selling everything. So – that kind of so so our approach to this is to say 
of course, we're aware there are risks. However, it has not been profitable to try to guess at which one's going to knock the market down. You, I don't know which one's the two by four. Josh, to your analogy. Josh, you know you just made an argument for risk parity. Well, I, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about risk parity. Might cost that, too much. What might you be just too, too rich for risk my. Might be too rich for my blood, but right, okay, right, sure, right, right. No, sure. That's, uh, but it, but it's but it's exactly that same notion, right? However, whatever flavor you want to talk about it is that core idea of of adapting, right. Right, I like that word, adaptive investing. What you're really saying is, I'm a little bit reactive. Right, right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be tactical, but that has kind of a bad, you know, connotation to people. Now it does. Word, Talk to me in six months. Right, right. The, yeah. Exactly. The word adaptive doesn't. But I think you're exactly right. It's a rules based reaction to what the market is giving you. Well, it has to be for me. It has to be on price because we we. We ran the numbers on everything else, and nothing else is reliable enough to give you a signal that you can live with. Uh, if So if, if price is what pays, then price should be what decides, I think, um, what decides what your allocation is. If you're doing like very honest rules-based, um, you, you, you try to use things like earnings, and then you realize, oh, there's an accounting change every five totally years. Totally you can't agree. compare this period to that period. You try to do things like GDP. And then you look no. at what really goes into it around the no. world. People, there are African countries where the GDP changes 100% overnight because they decide to count one thing as another thing. That's right. We, so we, we just say like, what is the thing that our clients um, react to most in terms of like what matters to them? It's the value of their portfolio. Um, and we use that as like a little microcosm for how the whole world treats markets. Something going up is good. Something going down is bad. Um, and reactive is not great if you could foresee things and it's better to act in advance. That's cool. But we can't. Most people can't do it. We so, can't. Right. Yeah, that's so. nuts. I, I mean, so so I will say that what, what, what I'm trying to do is to add to the notion of, of, of looking, I'll say, rigorously. What are the rules around narrative? What are the rules around these opinions and messages that, that, that are flowing to markets. Yeah. And I, and I want to incorporate that. So we reduce, so we just reduce that, we reduce that to trend. We just, look, it's, and not just direction of the market, but you're looking at acceleration versus deceleration. Uh, are markets still going up? Yes. Are they going up as fast as they were? Maybe. Yes, they are. No, they're not. What are the rules then when those things change? This is what excites me about some of the new technology that's out there that I'm trying to implement because you're, you're absolutely right. In the past, what I had to do for these sort of trying to figure out the rules of narratives is, as you say, reduce it to trend. I think we've got some more some, some more tools in our uh, toolbox now to, to look at it from a, from a uh, not a different way, but a, a better way, right? That's not just reflected sure. in the trend. There's a, million things, there's a million things you can add into that. You can... You, You've got guys now looking at satellite imagery to count the number of cars in a shopping mall parking lot. Right. You can look right. at crop height from space. Yeah. Be my guest. For for our purposes, we don't think that we will ever have an edge on keeping up with that. And that's A. And B, we don't think it's necessary. So I, I think every investor has to draw the line and say, where is the limit to what I can reasonably make an investment decision on? Where does that limit lie? And how do I arrive at determining okay, that's my limit. And I think for everyone, it's got to be different, right? Because there's different levels of sophistication. There's different levels of uh, willingness to pay attention. And that ranges from the guy running his own money at E-Trade 
to a $20 billion hey, hedge Josh, fund. Josh, I mean, we spend so much time paying so much attention to things that don't really matter. Sure. That don't really matter. And I, and I think what you're saying is paying attention to the things that do matter, which for most people is going to be what's your overall, I'll call it risk. Right. Probably, you know, how much, how, what can you live with in markets? Right. And, and, and once you've decided on that, Right, it, it it is much less. Okay, what's the crop height going to be? What's what are these little things? It's going to be much more based on what are the the, the big asset classes you're doing and what kind of what, what kind of prices are you looking? I at? I think the things? other thing the other thing that needs to go into that is that I think funds and um, advisors and money managers need to ask more of their clients. And I think before dollar one gets invested, there have to be these conversations about look at the end of the day. You have to be at risk of drawdown and volatility. Now, we can argue about how much of that you should be at risk of, how much you should be reasonably expected to take, but I can't outperform a checking account if you're not going to let right. me say to you, hey, we're down you know, 4% this month and you know, this goes part and parcel with potentially being up 7% three months from now and you just have to understand that this – I think – in the wake of the last crisis, a lot of money was invested in vehicles where they were being promised falsely or or, or truly very low risk. And now what's happened is they oh, found out that there's a downside to that, without which is, hey, why aren't I making any money? Right. So I, I think that we have to ask more of our clients and we have to ask them um, to get a little bit more educated about the connection. But, but here's the thing, Josh. It's not just asking your client at the beginning. And I think this is what's going to... I'm going to. It, yeah. it, but, but that's so critical because what... So the robo-advisor platforms today, if you sign up for an account there, they ask that question. Yeah. That's one of the questions that's embedded that's basically the SEC or whoever's regulating them has required them to ask. What's your tolerance for... It's a bullshit Market question, though. And it's a bullshit question. And the reason why it's bullshit is twofold. People lie. That's one. Well, that's uh, everyone thinks of their better self. Yes. So oh, I could. I can. This why it has to be an ongoing thing. So right? that's one. And two, the answer to that changes based on what's going on that day. Oh my God! This is my point about what's going on in the yeah. narrative and what's well, happening we already, around you. So we know that's bullshit. We ask. We ask the question, and then we explain to people why they have to answer it again and again. And they say, "Why do I keep doing this?" Because we're trying to produce an average. Good days, bad days, in between days, right after a month with a down made a new high, right after a correction. The the right answer to what your risk tolerance is, quite frankly, very hard to arrive at quantitatively. But if we are going to arrive at it, there's got to be more than one sounding. It's got to, you're right. This is my my whole line because you know it's trained you know quantitative methods, but but being quantitative, being mathematical doesn't matter. What matters is being rigorous. Yeah, sure. Just like you're describing. Sure. And, and I got to tell you, I really believe that this and only this is going to save human financial advisors from going the way of, of technology. Well, well. right. So, so there's two things. You have to have a relationship with somebody that you believe is, is, is taking care of you because you're never just going to live on numbers alone. Uh, almost no matter who you are is one. But then the second thing that I think is really interesting, getting back to risk tolerance we talk about risk in terms of drawdown. The real risks that I've seen working with high net worth investors is on the greed side. Like in other words, oh my God. Ben, if I pull into your in, into your driveway in a brand new Maserati and I tell you, oh yeah, uh, small cap value U.S. stocks. This is how <laughs> I this, right. I'm kill, 
what's your risk tolerance? It just went up 10 points because you say, well, look at this guy. Aren't I good enough? Aren't I as good as this guy? I should be out there raising my allocation. The risk is on the greed side, and, and that and that corresponds into our roles as financial advisors. Absolutely. Right? Our business risk, our business risk is not going down when everyone else goes down. Our business risk is not going up when everyone else goes up. Or letting people do the things that you know they shouldn't do and allowing it because you're afraid of losing the business. So having the having the guts Amen, to brother. say to some Amen, having the brother. guts to say to somebody, yes, there's a there's a carnival going on down the street <laughs> and it looks great, but in fact, we run the numbers for your retirement, for your kids' college. You actually don't need to be at that carnival, um, or a small portion of your. And whose whose quote was it? The guy from uh, First Eagle Global, um, the French guy. What's his name? I don't know. Genius. So he said during the dot com boom, they asked him about redemptions. Yeah. He said, "I'd rather lose. Uh, I'd rather lose half my clients." Then lose yeah, half, half my, my clients', clients money, yeah. and and there there are a few permutations of that. But he didn't he, keep his job. Uh, well, he st- <laughs> still remained the chairman, but uh, he was right at the, in the end. He and, was absolutely right. And 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 our I think our our role is to say, all right, you do have to take risk, but there are intelligent ways to take it. That's first. Second, if you're going to take risk, understand why you're taking it, so that at that moment when it feels terrible, you can remind yourself, oh yeah, expected returns are going up. As the value of my assets are going down, that's all that means. Um, and then, to your point, the third thing is to say where you're really going to hurt yourself is on the greed side, because you're going to take risks that you can't afford to take mentally, emotionally, and that's when it's going to kill you. Well, Josh, we'll call it a day for here. I'm just ha- happy to hear that you're actually a, a risk parity guy. So that's, that's I'm not a risk parity guy, <laughs> but 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 I'm open to, to potentially becoming one someday. <laughs> I'm an a, I'm a, I'm a strategic asset allocation guy with a side order of tactical for those who uh, who are going to pay too much attention to it, and I think that gets the job done. Heard, Josh. Thanks as always. Thank it's you. Just Thank great you. having you on. Thank you. My pleasure. CEO of Riddle's Wealth Management and uh, star of CNBC's halftime report. You can follow Josh at uh, Reform Broker on Twitter. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks.